So I'm going to speak about uh, what is distributism, where it came from, um, and, and what can we do with it. I will I'll warn you that I've been reading and thinking about distributism and, and writing a little bit about it now on and off for about 25 years. And I still don't have a definitive opinion about it. So I'll just kind of say that up front. So what follows is more like a series of reflections than a carefully worded argument either for or against it. Um, so, so distributism itself, just to start out, is an economic system, the, the main characteristic of which is property is widely distributed in society. And it's a system that was advocated, promoted by Hilaire Belloc and G.K. Chesterton, English Catholic authors from the early 20th century. Issues with distributism begin with the word distributism itself. But when we talk about widely distributed property, you have to understand that what, what is meant um, is distributed as an adjective, not, not as a past participle. In other words, property that is spread out in many, many hands, not property that has been taken and distributed to others. It's a very, very important distinction. People who know nothing about distributism, only the name, often assume it's the latter, that it means redistributism, if you will, uh, which, is, which is false. It, it's, it's the condition of being, of being widely, widely spread out. Where did it come from? There are sort of deep roots, um, and they are the deep roots of the encyclical letter Rerum Novarum, um, which uh, Pope Leo issued in 1891. And, and the, the, the antecedents of that are after a couple of centuries of, of enlightenment. Uh, by the late 19th century, we had the, the Western society undergoing huge changes in society as a result of industrialization. Um, and what was on everybody's mind is what was called the social question. The social question was basically how should we handle the political, social, and, and economic implications of industrialization, of the Industrial Revolution, where we had the move of masses of people from villages into big cities, um, living lives that in many cases were downright awful. Um, and um, towards the end of the 19th century, so a prolonged recession since about the 1870s, significant labor unrest, um, some violence. Um, one of the growing popular movements was the anarchists, whose main tool was assassination, um, and, and also Marxism growing in strength, uh, offering alternatives to the laissez-faire capitalism uh, that appeared to be crushing uh, the everyday the, the worker. Um, the Catholic Church itself was in the midst of an internal renewal. Um, we had important moves like the, the Declaration of the Doctrine of Immaculate, uh, Definition of Doctrine of Immaculate Conception, 1854, the apparitions in Lourdes, following that, the First Vatican Council, 1869-1870. Um, and then you have the election of Pope Leo XIII. Um, so the, the church at that point, the Catholic Church, is more and more marginalized. Um, the election of Leo XIII in 1877 was seen by many as the sort of last gasp of a dying institution. Here's this old guy sitting on a throne with a crown. Who do these people think they are? You know, um, And Leo himself was chosen. He was 68 years old when he was elected. And he was seen very much as a stopgap pope. We don't know who to pick. Pick this guy. He's old. He won't last long. Um, well, it turns out that the Holy Spirit had plans for him because he lived another 30 years and was one of the most prolific popes. Um, and, but he and the Catholic Church were the last place most people would think to go to 
for any guidance on the social question. Um, so, but there were a group of Catholic laymen, uh, lay leaders who approached him and said, you need to guide us on this social question. You need to give us some, some, some answers here, some guidance, because everybody's very confused uh, about what we should be doing. A number of them belong to a study group called the Freiburg Catholic Union of Social and Economic Studies. Um, one in particular I want to highlight, there's a nice little human interest story here. Um, he was Prince Karl zu Lowenstein, um, and he was actually a friend of Leo XIII. And, and he had one time approached Leo and, and asked him for some guidance, uh, uh, vocation guidance, if you will. He was thinking that he might have a call to the priesthood. And, and so Leo prayed with him and helped him discern. And then finally Leo said to him, you know, I got lots of priests. What I have very few of are faithful princes or faithful Catholic lay leaders. So go, go be a faithful Catholic, Catholic lay leader. And so he did. Um, and, and one of the things he did was, was a contributor to this, um, this group. The reason I know that little story is some years ago, I was at a conference in Milan and I sat down next to somebody and I, we introduced ourselves and he said his name was Prince Zulowenstein. And I said, but that's interesting because I was just reading about somebody with that same name. And he has this big grin and he goes, that was my great grandfather. And so, and so he told me this story because obviously if he hadn't followed Leo's advice and gone and become a priest then the, the whole family would not have continued. So, so, and this guy would not be sitting there next to me. Anyway, so just a little, little side story. Um, the, 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 so this, this study group and others contribute their writings to, um, to Leo. He ponders all of these and he issues this document called Rerum Novarum. And there are some very important characteristics of Reverend Barnes, very important teachings that help clarify the confusion that people are struggling with. First and foremost, he, he flatly rejects proposals to abolish private property, which is the whole Marxist direction was heading. And, and there were many Catholics who were thinking, well, you know, we're supposed to seek the first the things of heaven. Maybe we're supposed to do what these Marxists are saying. Leo says, absolutely not. He says, every, every person has the right to accumulate property of his own. Uh, and therefore private property is something that, that needs to be maintained. He talks about the duties of employers to respect the dignity of workers, the duties of workers to do, to do good work. Um, he talks about, uh, he affirms at the same time the value of guilds and trade unions. So there were some others on the other side of the, spec the political spectrum were thinking that trade unions were just a Marxist thing. Uh, and, and not a good idea. Leo is saying, no, no, these are, these are the natural kind of evolution of, of, uh, of the guilds and, and they are appropriate. A man is a communal animal, so it's appropriate for him to, to gather into unions like that. Um, side note, what he described as, as labor unions, very, very different to what, what we have right now. Um, and, and then he also affirmed that the purpose of property is to support oneself and one's family, but after that to support others. So that there's a, a, a purpose to the, to the property. Um, so along come uh, GK Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc, and they develop distributism as basically a proposal that takes rerum novarum seriously. He says, all right, we're gonna take everything that the Pope said, and if we believe all of this, and we do as faithful Catholics, then what does that mean for economic life? And that's what they, what they tried to expound in what this, this theory they call distributism. So Chesterton, um, when talking about distributism, begins by drawing a distinction between private enterprise and private property. He said, because you're in favor of one doesn't mean you're in favor of the other. 
and, and the, the famously the example he gives is that of a pickpocket, a thief, right, who steals from, from people. He says a pickpocket is a champion of private enterprise, but not a champion of private property, because he's happy to take other people's property, right? Um, he also points out very significantly that capitalism um, has a tendency to monopoly and concentration. Um, that in the drive to make as much money as possible, uh, capitalists will seek ways to grow their businesses through, through economies of scale and seek ways to shut other people out. So there's sort of this, almost this natural tendency towards monopoly. And I'll say a lot more uh, than that, uh, about that in a moment. Um, Hilaire Belloc um, and his most, I think, relevant, uh, he's written many, many things on, on distributism, but the most relevant one is his book, The Servile State, very, very important book, where he draws differences between capitalist, servile, and distributist states. Um, and, and I'll just give my own kind of summary, um, where in the servile state, a state that is basically based on slavery, such as institutes as we had in, in ancient times, um, in a servile state, the boss basically tells me what to do at all times. In a capitalist state, I get to choose my boss, but then the boss tells me what to do. In a distributive state, I decide what to do. I have no boss. I have my own property and I make my living from my own property. Um, he, Belloc coined the term wage slave to describe the state of the everyday worker in a capitalist society. Um, you contrast that with, with what he was talk, talking about as a distributive society. Imagine running your own family farm where you produce a lot for your own consumption as well as for sale. Um, you, you're, he argues you're truly free there, right? You, you don't have to bow to anybody else. You don't depend on anybody else because all the important things in your life, you produce, your family produces for itself, okay? Um, it, it is a, it's a concept I think that is quite foreign to us living today. Because I think many of us even forgotten that we've had this desire to be so free. We, for, throughout our lives, we're always under somebody's thumb, you know, whether it be our school teachers um, or, or a government official. Um, it's never more evident now in a pandemic where people are telling us where we can and can't go, what we can and cannot wear. But we're so used to this that, that I think we, we don't even notice in some ways what, what, what Belloc was striving for. I want to say a little bit about um, Belloc's critique about capitalism. So he pits distributism against capitalism, but his definition of capitalism is a little different, I think, from what we, what we would think of today. He describes it as that system where, quote, the ownership of the means of production is confined to a body of free citizens, lot, not large enough to make property ownership a general character of society while the rest are dispossessed of the means of production and therefore proletarian. Um, so, so in other words, a few people own the stuff, own the property, everybody else has to work for a wage. Okay, he says that's his specific definition of capitalism. Um, and by proletarian, he means where you are politically free but not economically free. Um, you are politically free, so we all have votes and we're allowed to vote as we wish and it's a secret ballot and so on. But money-wise, we're always dependent on someone, dependent on an employer or dependent on the government. Um, I think today we have, part of the problem with the word capitalism is many people have many different definitions, but I think it's more elastic than that. I think people, you, you, could, you could almost argue that what he's talking about distributism matches 
fairly closely with what some some people think of as as capitalism. I I, I like to draw a distinction between fundamentally two different kinds of capitalism myself, because I think that one word harbors two very, very different tendencies. Uh, the first kind I like to call imperialistic capitalism, and this is the type I think that Belloc is talking about. And this is the capitalism that seeks above all else to accumulate as much wealth as you can for yourself, doing everything you can to do that um, within the law and inf influencing the law as much as you can to allow yourself to accumulate as much wealth as possible. So that's imperialistic capitalism. Um, the other type I would call entrepreneurial capitalism, which is a capitalism that seeks to grow by serving others. So, so producing goods, services for other people, knowing that if you do that well, then your own wealth will grow as well. But it's, it's a question of what's the primary orientation? Am I going into business to get as much for my, as, as, as I can for myself, or am I going into business to serve others? Um, and the, uh, the latter kind is, is the kind I think that is consistent with Catholic social doctrine. It's the kind that we teach at my, my business school, Bush School of Business at, at Catholic University. And so, so some of what follows the description I gave of entrepreneurial capitalism, I think can look a lot like what um, Belloc was talking about in distributism, because he talked about small farms, but also small shopkeepers, small manufacturing enterprises. Um, th those, are, those are the sort of the good kind, the entrepreneurial kind of capitalism. I say there's not, not much difference between that and, and a distributist vision, I don't think. Um, so, so that's just rough, rough sketch of what, what distributism is and isn't. Um, now I'll talk a little bit about the issues with it. Um, the, so the Alan Carlson um, wrote a very fine book called Third Ways. Um, and, and in Third Ways, what, what Carlson gave is brief chapter long um, histories of different movements. Uh, distributism gets a chapter and then several other movements around the world uh, typically in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, of, of, of small scale movements towards a more distributed economy. And he has a very sobering and depressing conclusion. Uh, after reviewing all these different movements, he says, invariably, these small scale movements towards more distributed property are crushed by big business or big government, usually both working in concert who are concerned to, to, to protect their privileges, that they don't like the threat of widely distributed property. They want to keep, it, keep the property and the power for themselves. And I think Carlson hits on what I think is a key issue for us today that is not receiving nearly enough attention in all of our political discourse, such as it is. Um, and that is the concentration of wealth and power in the hands of uh, crony capitalists, or as I call them, imperialistic capitalists. And, and this, tends, this concentration tends to arise when you have collusion between big business and, and big government, where you, have, um, where you have businesses working closely with government, ostensibly for the common good, but the end result being fewer and fewer, bigger and bigger businesses with more and more wealth being held in fewer and fewer hands. Uh, Wilhelm Robke, who is an Austrian economist, as in an economist from Austria, rather than necessarily a member of the sort of Austrian economist movement, writing around 1975, um, says, quote, now nothing is more detrimental to a sound general order appropriate to human nature than two things, mass and concentration. 
individual responsibility and independence in proper balance with community, neighborly spirit and true civic sense, all of these presuppose that the communities in which we live do not exceed the human scale. They are possible only on the small or medium scale in an environment of which one can take the measure in conditions which do not completely destroy or stifle the primary forms of human existence, such as survive in our villages and small or medium-sized towns. So, so what he's saying is the kind of mass existence that we live now in the big cities where, where you have enormous numbers of people living together, um, in, in, where the, entire, the culture is, is all massified, the, the human relationships themselves are of very little significance in the, in the grander scheme of things, that this is antithetical to, quote, a sound general order appropriate to human nature. Um, there's an economist by the name of John Powelson, published a book called Centuries of Economic Development. Powelson um, studied, looked at the, the economic development of across many different countries over many different centuries. Um, this pursuit was inspired by a question he had, how come some countries tend to get on the path of economic development and others don't, even when they appear to have similar initial conditions. Um, and what he concluded was that concentration of wealth and power is antithetical to economic growth. So the kind of concentration that we have now ends up destroying itself, ends up destroying the economy that it is, that is living within. And, and the reason for that is those in power the more they the more wealth they absorb the less attention they pay to making sure that that wealth is properly employed and therefore the, the society becomes less efficient in terms of the use of its resources and it ultimately then then decays another person thinking around this time and describing the dangers of concentration of wealth uh, was as friedrich hayek um, who is a official member of the austrian economic uh, movement um, and and his, uh, his book, The Road to Serfdom, talks about how um, concentration of wealth and power leads to the destruction of capitalism and the free society. What's interesting about Hayek's book is um, there's a little, little noticed footnote early on in the book where he actually gives credit for this argument to Hilaire Belloc, saying Belloc saw this 50 years ago, you know, and warned us of this 50 years ago. Um, so where, where do we stand today? Um, here's an interesting statistic. 63% of the US population doesn't have the ready cash to deal with a $500 emergency. So forget about accumulating property, you don't even have $500 to your name. And this is two, -third, two thirds of our society. This should be really, really shocking to us, right? This is, this is clearly a society on the edge of servility. If two thirds of it can't even muster $500 to deal with, you know, the muffler broke on my car or, or the you know, the heating is, is, is gone down in, in, in the winter. Um, in a situation like this, Belloc would say we are politically but not economically free. And if we're not economically free, ultimately, we're not, we become not even politically free because we are, we're always following those who would promise to feed us and, and, and care for us. So the solution as Belloc is offering is more widespread property ownership. In effect, if, if you follow my definition of, of entrepreneurial capitalism, we need more capitalists, right? We need more people with capital. Um, and there's a, a saying that is attributed to Chesterton. 
I and every Chestertonian I know has never been able to find the source. So if any of you Chestertonians out there can find it, I would be most grateful. The saying that either property is bad, in which case nobody should have any, or as property is good, in which case we would want as many people as possible to have, to have property. The thorny question that always gets distributists tied up in a knot is how do we get to the place where property is widely distributed? Remember the adjective distributed. Um, Belloc himself says, uh, if we follow a path of expropriation, let's take from the rich, give to the poor to, so, so that we're distributed in, in the past participle sense, then we run into serious issues of injustice. So he recognizes that that is not the path to get widely distributed property. The question is, what is? Because the conditions just seem to be getting worse. So, so um, we have serious issues with corporate welfare where big companies are getting very good at extracting wealth from the government um, uh, through, through whatever kind of regulation. Um, we have the issue of what, what lawyers call or economists call regulatory capture. This is where the very people whom regulation is supposed to keep control of end up taking control of the regulation themselves for a number of reasons, but principally because they care about this regulation more than anybody else. And they have the power to influence that regulation and they know more about the things being regulated than anybody else. So when the government wants to regulate medicine, for example, it looks to the big pharma companies for advice, right? When the government wants to regulate food, it looks to the big uh, food uh, companies for advice. Um, and so you have this issue where the regulation is slowly turned. Um, I mean, think of it this way. Think about the regulation of electrical utilities, right? Um, how much time do you spend thinking about your electrical utility? Well, if you own a home and you pay or, or you rent, but you have to pay your own electrical bill, you probably spend five minutes a month thinking about it when you pay the bill. If it's included in your rent, you probably never think about it. How much time and effort does the electrical utility spend thinking about, say, the price of electricity? A lot of time, right? They put a lot of time and attention to that. So when it comes time to review regulation of that utility, who puts more effort into it, do you think? Obviously, the, the regulated entity. Um, really classic, uh, classic now, uh, example of this is, is the regulation of banks. So the Dodd-Frank Act of just a few years ago which was, it was literally subtitled an act to end the, the, the phenomenon of too big to fail. The direct result of this act, because it's so enormous and because compliance with it is so complex that only very large banks can afford it, the direct result of the Dodd-Frank Act has been we, ha we now have fewer and much larger banks than we did before the act. So the act that was defined to, to, to end too big to fail has made things even bigger and, and more dangerous in, in, in face of uh, at risk of failing. Um, so, 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 that, um, that, so we have corporate welfare, we have, we have regulatory capture getting in the way of or, or leaning against widely distributed property. We have the issue of inflation, which we haven't experienced yet, but I think anybody who thinks about it for five minutes knows this is going to come because the sheer amount of money that the government has been pouring into the economy over the last few years there's only one way out, but, but inflation. Uh, inflation favors those who own assets. So if you already have property, uh, if inflation comes, your property will be worth, at least in nominal terms, more. Um, whereas those people who only have not even $500 to their name do not benefit from inflation. They suffer because when they go to buy things, things are more expensive. And, and likewise, usury. Um, so, so Belloc has written quite a bit on usury. Um, 
We can talk about that in the Q&A if you like, but usually favors the wealthy over the poor, because typically it's the people who don't have money who borrow money from people who do. And in paying interest, there's a transfer of wealth from those who don't to those who don't do. This is most clearly seen in, in, in consumer lending, right? Um, so, so if we do nothing, the tendency is moving against a widespread property ownership, but change is really, really hard for a number of reasons. Um, Bishop Fulton Sheen, a former press, a pre, a professor at Catholic University, um, once said that, quote, there are a thousand angles at which a thing will fall, but only one at which it stands. He was talking about the Catholic Church, but I think it can apply to many things, including the economy. Um, of all the possible ways to structure an economy, there are an infinitely number of ways that would fail, that would collapse, that would not sustain themselves. Only a very small number that would stand for any length of time. So when we try to change any one aspect of the economy, such as ownership, for example, to bring it to a more human scale without changing other parts, such as consumption habits, production, distribution, and so on, um, and the culture within which the, the economy exists, we risk creating something unstable. And the rest of the factors then conspire against the change that you're trying to drive forward. Uh, but another big issue is not just getting property to be widely distributed, but keeping it so. Um, the, the virtues of, of thrift and prudence that are necessary in order, if property were widely distributed, that it should stay that way. Uh, Belloc himself, uh, towards the end of his life, his writing has a fairly despairing note. He says, but will men still want to own? Do sufficient number of people prefer property and independence over wage and dependence, right? Do they prefer freedom with responsibility or security and servility? And I think you look around you and, and you, you get the sense that I'm just not sure that there are that many people that really would rather take the risk and the freedom than the security and all the constraints that that comes with. It's, a quite, it's not a new question. This goes right back to the founding of the US. There's a beautiful uh, passage from Sam Adams, a speech he gave to the Pennsylvania State House which I want to quote, he says, if ye love wealth greater than liberty, the tranquility of servitude greater than the animating contest for freedom, go home from us in peace. We seek not your counsel nor your arms. Crouch down and lick the hand that feeds you. May your chains set lightly upon you and may poster posterity forget that ye were our countrymen. The scorn that he has towards people who'd rather serve and, and be taken care of than take the risk of, of freedom how many people would get up and go home if you address this to them today, right? Um, and so the final major obstacle, I think, to widely distributed property is the phenomenon of consumerism, the, the, the desire to seek fulfillment in having buying and having stuff. Um, Russell Kirk called this or something akin to it, the desire for immediate gratification as the great delusion of this epoch this delusion that stuff can make us happy. It's a delusion that is, is helped, let's say, and I'm a professor of marketing, so I can say this fairly, by the billions of dollars spent on advertising, right, every year. It, it may not intend to do that, but at minimum suggests to us that we may find our happiness in, in buying more stuff. Um, and a, part of the challenge is, is, is the technology. Um, Albert Borgman argues that technology in separating pleasure from work from the work that would otherwise be required for that pleasure has really helped accelerate, uh, in a sense, consumerism. I think about, for example, making a meal from scratch versus popping something in the microwave. We can get the pleasure of eating just with two minutes in the microwave, 
versus having to chop and cut and peel and so on. And the more we separate the pleasure from the work, the easier it is to just indulge in the pleasure. Incidentally, that's why we have an obesity epidemic as well as you know, other pandemics. Um, and then these easy pleasures crowd out the more complex pleasures, further accelerating this sort of consumerist uh, tendency. The consumerist tendency has led, I think, to a great misunderstanding now of what we mean by property. If you ask the average person, what, what is property, right? They would think in terms of luxury goods, fine cars, second homes, yachts, you know, um, that is a, is a narrow understanding and a misleading understanding of property, certainly the property that is defended by the Catholic Church, right? Why would the Catholic Church go out of her way to defend luxury goods? That, that doesn't make sense. Um, the, the Second Vatican Council writes of private property that it, quote, confers on everyone a sphere wholly necessary for the autonomy of the person and the family. Private property is necessary for human freedom, for human autonomy. But we're talking about productive property. So tools, investments, rental housing, that sort of thing. Property that can er help you earn, that you can use to earn, to earn an income on your own, not have to resort to a wage and uh, serving somebody else. Um, the problem is we've abandoned this notion, I think, in, in significant ways of, uh, of, of productive property as a way for sustaining families. And we've replaced it um, with providing security through government transfer payments. So welfare um, uh, uh, and, and, and various other kinds of transfer payments. Uh, but they're not, they're not substitutes for each other. Uh, transfer payments do provide financial security, but they don't help you with either freedom or, or virtue. Right? You don't grow more responsible by receiving a check from the government on a, on a regular basis. But if you have property and you have to care for it to ensure, let's say you own a small a duplex and you rent one flat, you have to take care of that flat, because that apartment, because if you let it get crummy, then you won't get rent from it anymore. So you, you, you learn to be responsible. So any move towards distributism would have to begin with a recovery of the meaning of, pri of private property as primarily productive property. Um, so let me, let me start to wind up so we can leave some time for, for, for questions. Um, I, okay, everything negative so far. How depressing, it's all over, right? It's, we're collapsing in, in concentration um, of wealth and power. Um, so let me try to kind of paint some, some possible avenues forward. If, if change on a, a mass societal level is hard, maybe even impossible, what, what would change on a more personal and, and, and communal level look like? Uh, Carlson, who I mentioned, who wrote Third Ways, makes a very interesting insight um, about the history of the family over the last hundred and some years. He said the family has moved where home used to be a, a center of both production and consumption is now only largely a center of consumption. The family consumes together but doesn't produce because dad goes to work, mom goes to work, the kids go to school to work, you know, and then we come home to consume, to watch movies, to eat, to play games, right? Um, the, the, the issue with that is consumption is, is self-centered, right? Is ultimately you consume for yourself. And even if we consume together, we have a meal together, each one of us is eating his own food. Whereas when we produce, it's much more frequently communally oriented, uh, at, not least because we often produce for others, right? So, so if we're cooking, 
together or we're cooking for someone else. We're making things not just for myself, it's for others as well, others in my family or, or others in the, in the marketplace and so on. And so if you ask the question, how can I try to live something like distributism here and now, I would, I would make the following suggestions. Um, if you're called to the married life, get married, raise a, a family and make your home a center of production and consumption. So try to make things at home as well. In what ways? So homeschooling is one example. We make our own education at home, right? That's instead of outsourcing it to the government uh, in, in public school, you know, um, or you, you grow a vegetable garden or you make yogurt, you know, or you cook meals from scratch as much as possible, you know, um, you you buy an apartment and you maintain it and you rent it out, you know, there's ways to, as a family. So the family works on to maintain the, the, the apartment, for example. So, so as a family, try to produce things together, not just consume things. Um, do everything you can to avoid a consumerist mentality. Uh, Pope St. John Paul II in, in his encyclical Centesimus Annus talks about having truth, beauty, goodness, and communion with others guide our spending and investment habits. So let's think about our spending. Be focused on the things that are true, beautiful, and, and, and good. Um, and, and instead, find your, your joy in, in real leisure, not, not consumerism. So especially outdoor stuff, hiking, making your own music, dancing, cooking, feasting, reading, and so on. Um, don't, don't conspire with usury. So don't borrow money except to make money. So borrow money to invest to make more, or, or borrow money to buy a car if the only way you can get to work is with a car because then the car is helping you make money, but never ever borrow money to go on vacation or to buy a car just because you want a car, you know? Borrow money to buy a house by all means if it's gonna save you more in rent, you know? So, so you wanna be on the right side of, of compound interest, not on the wrong. Um, uh, cultivate the virtues of thrift. So accumulate property now, start even as students, try to save some pennies of whatever you have and just to get in the habit of saving, even if the amount seems so little, you think it's hardly worth it, I could save more than this uh, in my first month of work, just get in the habit, get in the habit of saving. Uh, so, uh, so save money and, and just start to invest it, find ways to put it to work. Um, one last idea I'll share is one I like to call the half and half solution, which I have seen some people do very nicely, uh, including a friend of mine who, who owns a small farm, a family farm in Ann Arbor, He's a PhD statistician who does statistics consulting. He was doing it remotely before remote was cool. And he spends about half his day, half his working day, so four hours doing that. And the other four, well, the other eight, 10 hours uh, running the family farm with his wife and his children. Um, it's hard to make a family farm be prosperous. So he, does, he basically subsidizes it with, with this, it's, it's, I, say, I, I call it the half and half solution. So you get the benefits of a family farm without having to be really quite quite poor. So as I said, it's a, it's a reflection, not, not an argument, but I hope I have laid out sort of what distributism is, uh, what it's trying to do, what gets in the way of that, and just some, some uh, preliminary suggestions for what we can do about it. Happy to take uh, questions or comments.